I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, what two words would you use to describe your life right now? No joke, emails and spreadsheets. But those emails and spreadsheets aren't for the BFI anymore, are they, Anna? Oh, what a great segue. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Thanks. Uh, yes, I've recently just changed jobs. So I've left the BFI and the hallowed halls of the NFT. It was very, very sad. And I've started a new position as the head of arts and culture at DICE, which is an amazing platform to discover and attend live events. And I'm very excited, but I also miss the BFI. So this is the bigger picture with special guest host, <laughs> yes, Anna exactly. Thank you for gracing us with your presence yet again. Well, I mean, you should say that every single time we hang out. Anyway, I asked what those two words would be because this episode we're going to be talking about Pain and Glory, the new film from director Pedro Modbar, in which an ailing film director trips through his memories to find fresh inspiration. But first, Anna, what have you been watching? Well, I've just discovered this series on Amazon Prime called The Boys. The greatest superhero team the world's ever seen. It's a dark superhero tale about the seven, the seven. which are super abled humans who essentially are controlled by a corporation and kind of they live their life in order to protect people all around the world. But their image and their working life, their personal life is controlled by this company. On paper, it was a bit meh, but give it a little chance, and it is extremely dark and insightful. Ah, I'm invincible, stupid motherfuckers. I'm the world's greatest superhero. I can do whatever the fuck I want. We're on the verge of nailing these wankers. I'm done. It's based on a comic book by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson. It's all about vigilante justice, but it's so much more about myth building and image making because of the notion that these images of superheroes, which we're now a lot more accustomed to because of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Universe and kind of nerd culture and superheroes becoming part of the mainstream, we're very used to kind of loving them and kind of them being layered, but ultimately good characters. This is as if... David Lynch or the dude who directed The Human Centipede had an idea to make a superhero series together. What's Sporty Spice up to? Who? Sporty fucking Spice, what's she up to? I don't know. And baby, not even page six of the Daily Mail. You see, when they're apart, they're absolute fucking rubbish. But you put them together, they're the goddamn fucking Spice Girls. 
point is, we need each other. We're fucking in the war. It's really dark. It's very insightful on uh, manipulation of the media and of how big organizations and big corporations can control personalities and also public opinion and the expectation of super abled or just extraordinary people in larger scale society as well. So there's a lot of threats. It's almost an uncomfortable watch because they are not dark. They're intensely just blackened. The biggest name in this is Carl Urban, who plays the leader of the boys, which are the vigilante group who tries to take down the superheroes. So you kind of don't have that association of a big name star to any particular role. So you almost get even more immersed in this world that they're building. I want intensely blackened Anna Bogutskaya to go on the poster for Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> like a well done steak. God, that makes no sense, does it? <laughs> Something that does make sense is that what I've been watching, I'm segueing all over the place. I do well apologize. done. I'll clean up after myself. Everybody is in the place. Everybody in the Place Place is a documentary by Jeremy Della, who's a conceptual artist slash installation artist, which is on uh, BBC iPlayer at the moment. And it is about the late 80s, early 90s rave scene or acid house scene in the UK. But it does so much more in that that's a story that's been told quite a lot in terms of the Thatcher era and where dance music came from at that time and um, the element of protest that was in it. But what Jeremy does is present that lecture to a school class of six formers in 2019. Uh, Jeremy Della is going to be working with you. And watching them pick up on the kind of cultural shift that we've had over the last couple of decades is as fascinating as the story he's telling and the links he's making. There's been a coup. Here, the king of the producers has been deposed. So this is the Ronan 303. It was originally made to accompany guitarists, but as a product it was a failure. But in the hands of DJs and dance music producers, it made music that people have never heard before. So it's a brilliant potted history for anyone who doesn't know that scene. However it got its name, it's one of the hottest things going. And it's mainly but the best thing about time. it is watching how these kids react. And that's also the best and worst thing about the doc, because you can't help but show their reactions as narrative in that kind of filming. So whenever they see something that confuses them, you'll get the shot of them looking confused. Even though Karl Marx wouldn't have really understood house music. Which is fine, but then later on, spoiler alert, at the end of it, they turn the classroom into a rave warehouse and put lasers everywhere. And then they show the kids filming them on their phones. And there's a key point in the documentary which is saying that essentially social media and phone culture has decimated the chance of this kind of music scene happening again in any kind of large-scale way because we're all staring at screens. So to show today's teenagers then using their phones to document that is both interesting but also felt like a little bit of a rug pull on the kids that had collaborated on the show. That aside, it's brilliant, it's amazing, it's such a fresh take on a well-trodden, well-danced-upon subject and I'd really recommend it. Let's dive into Pain and Glory. Pedro Almodovar's new film stars Antonio Banderas as Salvador Mayo, a film director riddled with torments of the body and the soul. He stopped working because his back's playing up and his relationships are in tatters and his memory is flooding his senses and the headaches and the heartache and, oh yes, the heroin habit too. No ha sido un buen hijo, hijo mío. No. No. ¿Qué haces aquí? Tengo que hablar contigo. 32 años me ha costado reconciliarme con esta película. Si no escribes ni ruedas, ¿qué vas a hacer? Vivir, supongo. 
cuidado conmigo, ¿eh? Anna, you're from Madrid. You're in love with film and you've worked with Amodabar. I'm just going to hand the episode to you now, if that's okay. Um, I'm not actually from Madrid. Ah, <laughs> I thought I had the triple. I deliberately <laughs> did not correct that in your notes just so I could make fun okay, of you right now. where are you from? I'm from Barcelona. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's fine. I lived in Madrid and, and I did. did work for You Amadabar. talk about Madrid a lot. Yeah, because I lived there when I was a student and I started working there. And one of my first jobs in film was actually working at El Deseo, which is Pedro Almodovar's production house. So I worked for him for about two years, wow. right before I came to London. So the first film of his that I worked on as an intern was The Skin I Live In, which was also with Antonio Banderas. Yeah. And it was his big reunion with Banderas after a 13-year gap, I think, of not collaborating together. Yeah. And it ended with I'm So Excited. And I think I left about the time when they were finishing the sound design on Wild Tales, which was a co-production. And what kind of work were you doing for him? It's a very, very small team. So I started off as an intern and then I worked across publicity campaigns and marketing and digital projects and could have helped out in production a little bit. So it was very all hands on deck. So with all that in mind, and given that he said that this film is highly autobiographical, mm -hmm. what was it like for you watching this film? It was very strange. Yeah. I watched this for the first time in Cannes. It felt extremely familiar in many ways, but also felt right at home with several of his other previous films, in particular the ones that dealt with film directors as protagonists. Mm -hmm. It kind of finalized this trilogy of troubled film directors that he started quite significantly with Law of Desire. And that film, which is from 87 is important on many levels in his career because this is his first fully independent film through his company, El Deseo. And then Broken Embraces in 2009, which also follows a film director who has gone blind. No sé de qué habéis hablado todos estos días. So this almost completes it. And it's funny that in Law of Desire, Antonio Banderas is in it and he's beautifully an actor. And I think it was his third collaboration with Pedro at that point. And he is the exact opposite of the role that he plays in Pain and Glory. He's the young, beautiful object of desire and sort of troubled but very appealing young man who becomes obsessed with the protagonist, who's a film director, who at that stage is extremely successful and kind of unconfident in his career and his art, but very troubled with his love life, mm. which is where he becomes embroiled with Antonio's character. And then 30 years onwards, maybe even more, he is older and a seasoned, you know, film star, and he's playing this other version of that initial film director from Law of Desire, where he's aged, he's in pain, he's in his creative decline. La Filmoteca ha restaurado sabor. Han decidido que es un clásico. Y la han programado para un ciclo de, de cine rodado en Madrid. Bueno, me llamaron para pedirme que la presentáramos juntos. Y no saben que no nos hablamos desde el rodaje. Bueno, si lo saben no me han dicho nada. Alberto, los chismes envejecen. And he's thinking back on his loves and his desires from his youth as well, which memory and desire always have a place in all of Haramundawar's films. Yeah. So, but this feels melancholic, but also extremely sincere. 
you just want to watch it several times because there's so many things you can pull out of it and so many layers and details, especially in the language, in the decor, in the color combinations, especially. Estoy con Salvador Mayo. Si tú ves algo raro, me llamas. Aquí todo es raro. ¿Nos conocemos? Sí. Me gustaría ser un hombre para bañarme en el río desnuda. ¿Y qué es? ¿Drama o comedia? Pues no lo sé. Eso, eso no se sabe. It's interesting to see how the viewing of a film director watching their own work has evolved in those three films from the 80s, what he was at the peak of his creative powers. And, you know, the following year after Law of Desire, he would break internationally with Women on the Verge of the Nervous Breakdown. Eleven years after that, he would win his first Oscar with All About My Mother. Mama, the película va a empezar. Voy, voy. And then when he reached the top, what do you do from there? And that's kind of the story arc of his, you know, imaginary film directors that he portrays in these films. And yeah. I find it fascinating and such a beautiful arc. Yeah, and extremely rare to see somebody who's so adept at telling their own story without wallowing in what I dismissively called whinging before we started recording and you glared at me. But um, <laughs> I think I think this could easily fall into a whinge, right? It could, because there's an awful lot about mm. Antonio Banderas' character's physical ailments and how his head's always aching and his back is breaking down and how that's playing into his mindset. And he makes a lot of excuses for why he doesn't want to film or he says he can't film anymore, which are all psychological based, but are based in kind of very stereotypical elderly ailments that people accumulate as they get older. And I think in the hands of most other directors, mm. that would be seen as... Whinging. Whinging, but yeah, like, poor me, isn't yeah. this a tragedy? Isn't this a feeling that my life and my creative spirit is dying and dwindling? And that is in here, and it's crucial. But it's also, if you're going to add another word to the title, it'd probably be joy, because there is so much joy in the reminiscences, which is in itself is quite mm. sad and tragic as well, that he's so in love with the sunniness of the past and that he's trying to tie that back into his life now and r realize that he still has something to contribute. And I imagine as you get older, that is something that plays on your mind more and more. Like, do people still find me of worth? And more importantly, do I find myself of worth, both physically and mentally? So I think this film really gets that across beautifully. I think there's a couple of things there to pick up on what you just said. One of them is kind of how he portrays pain, mm. I think is quite interesting because he describes it really clinically. There's a whole section in the beginning of the film where he basically gives a a self-diagnosis of the sort of pains that yeah. he's been experiencing. It's like an animated textbook, yeah, isn't it? Where they show it the different parts of the body and the things that are going wrong yeah. with him. The way that he describes pain actually relates to it as a blocker for his creativity because I think you can apply this to Almodovar's work retrospectively, also the way he talks about his work, but also in this particular character, it's very sensorial and kind of based on experiences. You know, Almodovar has spoken about this, not as autobiographical, but as autofiction. And a really interesting thing he said during a Q&A was that he amalgamates memories of his own, of his brother, of his sisters, mm. of his friends. So it all becomes sort of a sensorial mishmash of reminiscing and experiences. So you can't really attribute one thing to one person or another because they'll become sort of one big melded pot of experiences and approaches to life and art. So the use of pain, especially chronic pain, that will never really be fixed, it's just always going to be there, suddenly becomes this massive distraction for his character where 
he then shifts his focus to focusing on his body and his pain, whereas all of his work and his joy had been coming from his mind and from his kind of intellectualizing and experiencing and taking bits of other people's experiences to create art from it. But if he cannot do that because he's too locked in, literally, in himself and his bodily experiences, which are now pain, what can he do? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mamá. ¿Qué, mi amor? ¿El seminario es un sitio para ser cura? Sí. Te hago una tortilla de patata de esas que te gustan a ti. Guapo. Yo no quiero ser cura. No hace falta que lo seas. Entonces, ¿por qué quieres que vaya a un seminario? Pues porque para los pobres no hay otro modo de estudiar. Por eso. ¿Qué quieres que haga yo? ¡Salvador! ¡Salvador! What I find really interesting in kind of this trilogy, without going too much into Pedro's other work, is that it becomes more closed in as well. So Law of Desire is this great, vivacious, like rowdy, you know, portrait of Madrid in the late 80s. You know, they're on the street a lot. They're going out, they're going to parties and stuff like that. There's like a lot of openness in it. And then Broken Embraces is more closed. It basically takes place in in an apartment, in a director's apartment, uh, once he's gone blind. And then in flashback form in this kind of big mansion and on set while they're shooting a film. So it's kind of a bit more you know, closed off already in mm. two and three 
very specific enclosed spaces. And then Pain and Glory basically entirely, except for a couple of scenes, takes place in um, Salvador's apartment. There's a lot made of him taking his his mother, who is still alive, but just on the yeah. brink in some of the flashbacks, um, taking her for a walk. Yeah. And a walk means literally walking around the apartment and back to her bed again. And that's for yeah. her because she's particularly frail. But you exactly. also sense that it's for Salvador, right? Like the, he can't leave the apartment because he's locked himself, as you're saying, yeah. in this kind of psychological space that means that his pain has become everything. If you're a person who's taking and gleaning inspiration and content and phrases and memories and images and colors from everything around you, if you then become locked in, mm. there's very little to glean from, which totally. becomes this, you know, creative desert in a way. And I'm not saying that about Pedro, I'm saying that about kind of the character of Salvador Mayo yeah. and how this pain becomes double-edged because it's the physical one, which you can control with, I don't know, prescription pills, medication and treatments or whatever. But then that actually, the real pain for him is not being able to make the work in the way that he needs to make work. So his process is kind of eliminated by his body fighting against him, essentially. Yeah. I want to self-indulgently swing back to self-indulgence because I loved what you were saying about the, the idea of autofiction, but autofiction being something that you select from different people's lives around you as well as your own. And it, like this film really made me think across cultures of things like like Kendrick Lamar, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that he portrays Compton at the time when he was growing up. And it's about the community and it's about different experiences he had. I was going to kill a couple rappers, but they did it themselves. Everybody's suicidal. They didn't even need my help. They should have said elementary. I'd probably go to jail if I shoot at your Identity and bounce to the left, stuck a flag in my city. Everybody's screaming, Compton, I should probably run from air when I'm done. To be honest, and I put that on my mama and my baby boo too. 20 million walking out the court, baby, whoa, whoa. And especially into Pimp a Butterfly, he's talking about murder and mm -hmm. talking black and black crime. It's still kind of undecided whether Kendrick Lamar actually was involved in violence himself, but he does it so convincingly and so passionately that you believe that he was in those situations, even if he's a representative mm -hmm. of the community that he comes from. And then that happens in video games as well. There's this guy called Edward McMillan who makes games that are based all on his own kind of psychological struggles, but he does them in such a kind of a way that the mechanics are so fun to play that his pain becomes joyful, which makes you feel icky about playing mm. because you're having fun playing through someone's pain. One day, while our heroes were enjoying life, Dr. Fetus attacked them! And kidnapped Nugget! And I don't know what it is about certain artists that are able to do that, that they're able to take an issue that is completely personal to them and extrapolate stuff out of that which becomes universal. I mean, I guess that is great art because then you truly understand somebody. Mm. But it, it fascinates me that certain personality types do that. And another example I thought about just very quickly is Patrick Melrose, the TV show, which is based on the Edward St. Auburn books. Most people will be drawing from heroin, high on speed, controlled by quaaludes and jet lag, might balk at the idea of food. But not I. I eat not from greed, but from passion. Do shut up, will you? Not you, someone else. Would Sir care for a dessert? Care for it? How do you care for a dessert? Feed it? Visit it on Sundays? I'll have a creme brulee and a mug to Bourgoyne. But it's still not heroin, is it? Heroin's the cavalry, the missing chair leg. Heroin is love. Simply call 555 Shut up! The way that drug addiction and child abuse have been spun into, again, this entertainment product, and it sounds very trite to say that, but I do think it's a hugely significant thing that you can focus on 
so much pain and heartache that is so personal mm -hmm. and explode that into, in this case, in Pain and Glory's case, a two and a half hour film that really makes you want to stay mm. in that world even longer. I think autofiction is such a, a much better way of describing not just Pain and Glory, but that sort of work rather than autobiographical, because there are certain implications when you label a something as autobiographical. It means that, A, you cannot really critique or have a conversation around it because it, it can be interpreted as an assault or a personal insult to the person who's written or made that yeah. piece of work that's autobiographical. You know, if you write your memoir and I critique it... And you know you would. <laughs> then it would be like a dig at you, whether if it's, you know, transformed through art and you're taking a step back almost from your own experiences and you're being extremely self-aware but also creating a larger or seeing larger narratives and themes in it, it might originate from something that's deeply personal. You might even use yourself, like you were describing with Kendrick, and to an extent like Salvador Mayo is an, you know, a version of Almodovar, but it's not him. Mm. It's a fictional character, but there is elements of that. And I think that comes from an intense self-awareness, but also an intense appreciation for storytelling and for building a narrative that can speak to different people and on different themes that you want to explore, but doesn't limit itself to reality or to your particular experience. It's kind of acknowledging that one, our experiences are extremely, God, I hate this word, subjective, but <laughs> it's one side of very multifaceted stories. If you go to a party with 50 different people, there's 50 different sides to that party yeah. and you're only experiencing one. A great artist like Kendrick or Almodovar will be able to take a step back and actually use elements from all of those different 50 sides of the story to create something that seems universal. Yeah, but again, stepping back and taking bits of other people's stories and putting them in, but that's a very unmodern thing. If you see, I mean, mm. if you think about social media, yeah. it's all about narcissism. It's about presenting your side of the story consistently and building a brand of yourself that is built around that story. Here's I the mean, old man narrative again. Oh, slightly. Is bad. No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it, it encourages that. That's what it's built on, right? That, those are the instincts that it's built on. And it's masterful that people can step away from their own lives so much, particularly, you know, it's not like they're talking about going down the shops for the most part. They're talking about things that are life-threatening mm -hmm. and they're able to step out of that experience and pick things, a rainbow of things that make it much more accessible to everyone else, but at the same time maintain a personality to it that is theirs and couldn't be anyone else's. Mm. I think that is encroaching on genius, that kind of skill. And I kind of try to do that, but can't can't quite manage it. And there's particular moments in this film where, you're not sure if it's in his life mm -hmm. or not, but it doesn't seem to matter. Like one heartbroken moment mm -hmm. is where his former lover comes up to the flat and they have this kind of chance-free encounter after he's written a play about their experiences together. And they used to be lovers, but they fell apart because of his lover's heroin addiction, which is doubly ironic because the director himself is now dabbling in heroin. Yeah. Just beautiful exchange between them where they're reminiscing and the guy's saying, oh, I'm married now with a kid, but I still have feelings for you and I still find you sexy. And... You just believe every single moment of it. And it's in the performances, but it's also, crucially, the undercurrent of Amodabar is there the whole time. And you mm -hmm. feel nothing else but pain, heartache and joy that you're seeing this playing out in front of your eyes. I completely agree with you. It's a beautiful moment. The other, directly preceding that, the thing that touched me even more 
from this film was the performance by Asiere Chandia, who plays um, Alberto Crespo, who is this actor who Salvador Maya reunites with, who he hasn't spoken with for 30 years, because when they filmed their kind of great masterpiece work of art, which is referenced, but obviously it's made up, it's not a real film, they fell apart and it is revealed that they fell apart because Alberto was on heroin during the time of the shooting, which is also ironic. And he sort of introduces Salvador to smack essentially but But it's almost like he's doing the drug to try and reconnect with those people that he lost right because one's an one's an addict that he hasn't seen for 30 years Mm -hmm. one is someone who he was deeply in love with that he lost through heroin and it's like if i haven't got these people in my life i'll do the drug that they were doing i love with his films as well and with what i assume he's like that we can have these weighty conversations about his filmmaking and there is a great depth and beauty to it, but also the lightness of touch is crucial. And mm. it's for that reason that I realised I wouldn't think of any other art house film director, and I use that term with air quotes because, you know, he's astonishingly successful as well, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, any but other filmmaker of that level who would, and that kind of tendency, who would appear on the Graham Norton show. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Pedro Almodovar, what took so long to come back to pure comedy? I don't know why I wanted, but it... Uh, oh, I, I was getting older, you know, and this is so sad. So <laughs> perhaps it was because of that that my movies became uh, darker and darker with the time and more somber. And it's anyway, just funny to, to see him as this kind of titan of cinema that also mm. is a kind of celebrity in his own right. And uh, we keep, as you say, we keep digging for more details about his life because he is, you know, a celebrity that we want to know more about. And yet he can kind of sit comfortably on the sofa next to Lewis Hamilton and Dara O'Brien and do chit-chat Yeah, because he's incredibly smart and incredibly funny and just hilarious at every single turn. I'm not surprised at all, but you're absolutely right. There's not that many, A, recognisable, independent, international foreign language, and I use this with air quotes because Mm. obviously we're speaking in English and everything else is foreign language, (laughs) Um, like non-English speaking directors who could go in the Graham Norton show and be charming and hilarious and incredibly insightful and smart as well and then make these weighty beautiful films that are operating on the highest level of cinema possible it's quite unique After the pain, the glory, the joy and the comedy, that's it for this episode. These lights are too bright and my head's starting to wake. You can catch Pain and Glory on general release and at the BFI South Bank from Friday the 23rd of August. Also, check out our video of Amoldabar talking about the film on the BFI's YouTube channel. The Bigger Picture brought to you by the BFI is presented by me, Henry. I'm at Henry H. Barnes on Twitter and Anna, who's... Anna B. Demented. Our producer is Pete Sale, who, like Pedro, likes a whinge and, like Pedro, makes beautiful art out of that pain. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. A little bit of context before our last line. There is a scene, as Anna mentioned, where Salvador is talking about his early memories of cinema. And he says that my earliest memories of cinema of the smell of piss and a cinema screen because all the little boys at the screening used to run behind the screen and pee because they didn't want to miss any other film and I wanted to bring up that line because Dad mentioned coming up if you've ever been to the cinema with your kids you'll know exactly what he's talking about <laughs> it was coming there couldn't be an episode without it yeah well done <laughs> Thank you.
Everybody in the place. Everybody in the place. Everybody in the place and um 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 everybody is in the place let's go 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 